This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. It's the Women's World Cup preview, essentially a shorter, less professional version of The Guardian Women's Football Weekly preview that came out on Monday. Download that pod immediately. England, the European champions, have lots of injuries, but a brilliant manager. How do they stack up against the other favourites? How does anyone stack up against the US? Are the Irish soft or the Colombians violent psychopaths? Does anyone know? We'll cover the -the behind-the-scenes problems with Spain and ask if home advantage can take Australia all the way. After that, we'll focus on two big and serious stories. Firstly, football social media coming out in strong support for Benjamin Mendy, and then the desperately sad childhood of Delhi Alley and whether it should change how we talk about footballers. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hi, Max. The host of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly, Faye Carruthers. Hi, Faye. Hey, Max. And uh, out in Australia, Susie Rack. Hey, Susie. Hey, hey. Now, Susie, you've already tweeted a very lazy tourist picture of yourself holding a koala. It's almost like they hand you a koala as you enter Australia. <laughs> H- how is it? My my unscientific view is that Australia is, is ahead of the UK in terms of women's sport and especially football. I mean, do you get a real vibe that there's a real optimism about this tournament? Definitely. I mean, I think it's helped by like just uh, how good Australia are at the moment as a team and how like well everything's come together for them ahead of the tournament but there is I mean like you know you look at Sam Kerr and she's not just the biggest female football player in Australia she is one of the biggest like celebrities in Australia full stop so there's a real like hype around it and it's so much better in France in terms of that as well like there's you know you you go into any you come out of any airport and there's you know signage and I think I can't remember which airport it is but one of the airports there's like they've built a a a mini pitch and stadium in arrivals and people waiting to pick up their guests sit in the the mini stands of this stadium like they've really gone big on like the advertising you see it everywhere, um, and that yeah, there's a real enthusiasm for it. And you know, fifty odd thousand at the uh, the Australia sort of send off game against France in Melbourne, um, like yeah, speaks to sort of the hype around it. But that it's it's all fueled by this. They could they could do something special um, as well. I like the idea of arrivals that. If you're if you're pl- the flight is delayed, if you're picking up, you can harangue the fourth official yourself. <laughs> you can do that. Uh, let, let's talk about um, uh, Group D, then England's group to begin with. Faye, China, Denmark, and Haiti. Uh, they kick off on Saturday morning UK time, ten thirty against Haiti. Um, we've talked a lot about the injuries to Leah Williamson, Beth Mead. Frank Kirby, do we do we know how England are going to set up? Well, we can guess uh, based on what Serena Wiegmann's done in in a couple of games while those players have been missing. I, th- I think the biggest question mark for me is is in defence and whether or not she decides to have Alex Greenwood as left back or whether she puts Alex Greenwood and Millie Bright, if indeed Millie Bright is fit enough to play um, in those uh, centre back roles, and then of course. You've got the question mark over whether Rachel Daly starts up front or Alessia Russo starts up front or Rachel Daly slots back into left back where she was previously. How could you do that to the WSL's uh, golden boot winner? It's, it's you know, they're good headaches to have in a way. Defensively is where I'm slightly worried um, uh, because the, the youth and slight inexperience, I would say. And also uh, she didn't 
cover herself in glory necessarily in the Australia-friendly Esme Morgan, but she does play with Alex Greenwood at Manchester City, so that could be an additional pairing, but they're young, the other defenders, and I think you need experience. Is it an easy group? Sort of beyond Pernilla Harder at Denmark, Susie, how, how easy is this for England? I mean, for, for England, it should be a walk in the park to a certain extent. I mean, it should it should be very straightforward, but there's that's a lot of shoulds. You know, England haven't scored a goal since the finalissima. So, like, there is that sort of hanging over them a bit, but they have been creating chances. And these are teams that you should get chances against, enough chances against to, to score. Denmark could potentially cause a little bit of an upset because Penilla Harder is just a player that can make extraordinary things happen. Um, out of nothing there is a slight risk there but the rest of the team around her is so weak in comparison um, you know it's not weak team but just in comparison to her level it, it's it should be fairly straightforward for them um, yeah China again they they are a slight unknown entity they've changed a lot since the last World Cup it, they've not necessarily had the best run in, but again, they're they're not a they're not a team to entirely write off. But in terms of England's level, when you're talking about European champions, one of the best in the world, it should be like yeah, they should trot through it in theory. Barry, a lot of people are already saying that England's route to the final is tricky. Sound sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a very good chance they could um, come up against Ireland in the last 16. So that's certainly very <laughs> tricky. And that would be the, the dream game for Ireland, certainly. I'm aware England have these injuries. And I suppose it's time to stop talking about the players who aren't there and, and focus on the ones who are. But other teams also have serious injury issues um the united states are without several players um i know uh canada they're missing janine becky who i have heard of so she must be very good <laughs> um france uh missing delphina cascarina and marie antoinette toto and uh, new zealand missing katie root so you know lots of teams have injury problems these it happens uh, Ireland have an injury issue of their own. I presume we'll get to them in, in time. But uh, winning international tournaments is difficult. <laughs> it's really difficult. And you are going to encounter strong opposition along the way. Uh, unless you're uh, unless you're England men, Barry, obviously, who never well, ever yes, face. There is that. <laughs> <laughs> and they still manage to somehow not win, and yet get great praise lavished upon them. But look, let's not go there today. Uh, yeah, I I don't think England will win this tournament, but uh, I, I would imagine anything less than a semi final would be regarded as as failure. I would point everyone in the direction of Monday's uh, Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Actually, you subscribe to that pod, and not just because you know the two main protagonists are sitting in front of me on a Zoom call, but uh, they are going to be taking the lead on on, on the World Cup, um, and so it's a much more detailed preview than this. But on that, Rob um, Fay Robin said she thinks Serena Vigman is the best coach at the tournament. Is that widely accepted? Yeah. Like, does everybody just think that? No, I, I, widely accepted. You know, she she obviously won FIFA Best as as well. Uh, obviously, everybody has their opinions on whether or not that is actually, the, you know, the, the best coaches, the best players, etc. Et but she certainly is as far as I'm concerned. And she obviously, don't forget, led the Netherlands to um, a European Championship herself 
followed by in 2019, taking them to the final where they eventually lost to uh, uh, to USA. So yes, she she most definitely is. I think if Jill Ellis was still at the USA, there would be a question mark over, you know, w- whether or not. Jill Ellis is the is the best coach in this tournament, but Serena Wiegmann for sure. And she's given this Lionesses side a different belief in themselves. You can tell it within the players. It's not just them winning the Euros. They won the Euros because they believed they could win the Euros because Serena Wiegmann came in with a winning mentality and made them believe that they could do it, and they did. And I think that's going to hold them in really good stead in 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 this tournament as well. It's just a slightly more inexperienced um, side because of uh, of the injuries that they have, but they're a side that feel empowered. They're inside a side that are confident and they have enough experience around them that actually the youngsters coming through aren't green, if that makes sense. Um, they've they've had their own, you know, ex- experiences and, and almost live vicariously through those who won the um, the European Championship in the first place. So, you know, I'm, I'm not worried from that point of view. And, you know, as me and Susie say all the time in Serena Wiegmann, we trust. Susie, you reported yesterday the Lionesses have paused discussions with the FA over performance-related bonuses until after the World Cup. Can you just shed a bit of light on that? Because it seems from the outside that you want your players not having to worry about admin, right? When there's a football tournament and it seems they've got quite a lot of admin to worry about. They're not the only team, of course. We'll get onto those, but but what's happened and, and where are we at? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest frustrations of the players, actually, is that it's dragged on into the tournament when... It, you know, it could have been resolved a long time ago. And there's like, they very much, I think, get, I get the impression that they feel that they weren't taken too seriously until um, we broke the story in The Guardian that there were frustrations there. Um, and it was only that really that ramped up the negotiations and they felt like they were suddenly being taken seriously. But basically it's, um, you know, so there's a new um, prize money model that's been set out by FIFA. So FIFA gives every federation money for competing in the tournament. And previously, the FA had just apportioned a part of that to players as performance-related bonuses. And now FIFA are setting a level of money that the players should be paid within that. So the money is still going to the federations from FIFA. But FIFA is saying that a minimum of this amount, about $30,000 for the group stage, going up to about 217000 for the winners, Um there's, this is per per player. Yeah, per player. Exactly. So this is set by FIFA, but it's still from the pot of money that is given to the federations. So the FA's argument is that it's the same pot of money, it's just FIFA ring-fenced a part of it, and it's a significant uplift on what we previously gave the players. So what's the problem sort of thing? The players are arguing that this is the, the minimum, right? This is the bottom level. FIFA have set the bottom level that is affordable for, you know, the equivalence of Haiti and Jamaica, and have said, right, we're going to stick England alongside that. Whereas the US get bonuses separate to that from their federation. Australia have collected bargaining agreement that should put the same in place as well. Um, so they're saying that you're putting us on the par with the, the weakest nations in the tournament and not pushing on uh, at the level of the ones competing at the very, very top level. Um, so that's that's a disagreement. But there's also frustration over like commercial value, of the team and and there's general agreement with that from the FA that there is a problem there that they're not benefiting enough from the commercial deals um, that the FA are are making money off um, in and around major tournaments and there has been some progress in talks on that but it's a bigger picture thing it's about yeah like setting the stall for the future sort of thing and making sure that players are properly 
um, properly paid for competing in in major tournaments and that England stays competitive as a nation at pushing the game forward. So that's like the broad strokes of it. It's like a little bit messy, but there's a real frustration that it's run into the, they very much feel like they've been run into the world cup so that the world cup is out of the way and then it's almost like the world cup makes it goes away go away as a problem um and another like key point is that within the money that fifa gives to the fa that's gone up significantly because the prize money pot has gone up from 30 million to uh, 110 million dollars so the money that they're getting is a bigger pot the players are getting a bigger slice within that because FIFA are delegating it but it's not at the level of some, you know what some of the other teams are getting on top of of, of that money that's allocated by FIFA. Group B uh, Australia, Canada, Nigeria and the Republic of Ireland uh, so Ireland uh, begin against uh, Australia um, tomorrow 11am uh, and they had a friendly against Colombia called off well they walked off the pitch as far as I can tell because it was overly physical. The Republic of Ireland manager Vera Powers said her players feared for their bodies um, during the warm-up match with Colombia that was called off after 20 minutes. Uh, the Colombian FA released a statement said the Irish preferred not to continue and added, we follow the rules of fair play. I guess, Baz, we don't know what happened, do we? But uh, uh, it's in a friendly to start kicking lumps out of people when you all want to play in the World Cup. You get, it's just like Sunday League going, we've all got jobs, we've got work on Monday, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I've I've seen the contentious tackle on Denise O'Sullivan footage uh, recorded by someone in this. I think it was by the FAI, but it wasn't like a close up. It was um, from a long way away. It didn't. It looked quite nasty. It wasn't horrific, but I think it was uh, a culmination of several meaty challenges which uh, Ireland's players and and their management team took exception to. Ruesha uh, Littlejohn, uh, who, um, fun fact, is the twin sister of our Talksport colleague, Shabana Hearn. Oh. Uh, she, she had been subjected to one uh, previously. So I think the FAI uh, decided, look, this is this is too risky and abandoned the game and then just played a training match, uh, Ireland A v Ireland B, instead. And apparently that there was a few tackles flying in <laughs> in that as well. <laughs> I think Ireland have a reputation for being quite aggressive. Um, but, yeah, uh, the game was behind closed doors. There were no press there. So, you know, I can't say definitively that Colombia were shit houses, but... Um, th- it was obviously rough enough for, for the FAI to decide that now there's no point in continuing with this. Uh, and Denise O'Sullivan, she's one of two star players Ireland have, uh, Katie McKay being the other. So everyone was terrified that she might miss the tournament through the injury and she was walking around in a moon boot. But she has uh, returned to training over the past couple of days and I think is expected to take... Um, part in full training today so fingers crossed she'll be okay like the idea of Ireland B walking off after 20 minutes of the Ireland A Ireland B game because <laughs> that got too violent it does matter I mean it's bad it makes me really want to watch Colombia's first game just to see <laughs> see how they come out um um Faye Australia beyond Sam Kerr right who is we've established she is a superstar and they have home advantage right and they'll have great crowds do they have anything beyond that what's the rest of the squad looking like 
Yeah, they have a lot beyond that, actually. And and I thought they were superb against England at, at Brentford in that 2-0 friendly win, actually. I, I think they're one of those teams that have always... Not flattered to deceive, that's not that... Almost underwhelmed a little bit, promised so much because they have Sam Kerr in their ranks and then not necessarily uh, backed it up. But I feel as if, you know, they they can really push forward. Courtney Vine is a is a real talent. Mary Fowler as well. Just, and they've also just got a real team spirit. And don't underestimate what home advantage can give. You know, they, even when you look at their their ranking in terms of um uh, 10 in, uh, you kind of maybe think they're not that they're not going to necessarily set set the tournament alight and might struggle against some of the bigger teams when you think of 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 Canada being the Olympic champions but Canada as as Barry mentioned earlier have uh, injuries themselves at the moment and I, I think actually Australia are going to uh, are going to win this group and I think they might do it comfortably I might also be proved very wrong because all the predictions on uh, mine and Susie's pod are usually really, really wrong. <laughs> so they could, you know, crash out in humiliating uh, style, but I just don't think they're going to. I think they've just got a bit about them and I feel as if they're going to come into this tournament thinking this is our opportunity. Legacy is being used as a word as it is in women's football a lot of the time, actually, and eventually we'll get to a point where we don't have to keep talking about it, but equally Legacy in Australia is is really important. They want to show, same with New Zealand as well, the co-hosts. They want to show young girls in the country what can be done and and that that they can be successful and take their part on the world stage. And it's part of the reason that FIFA wanted to to take the the tournament over to this part of the world in the in the first place. So I'm actually really excited to what they can do. As long as they don't finish second in the group and then knock out England, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, there was um, you know, points you made about legacy and uh, and home advantage. I think that's they're the things that set apart home advantage in the women's game from the men's a little bit. Matilda's Twitter account put up this great video last night of uh, the team being surprised by a visit of Kathy uh, Freeman, who like walks into the room and loads of them have previously said that you know when they've had to name their, you know, sort of their their sporting idol, they've all named Kathy Freeman. So she walks into this room and then does this talk with them, sits around, has a conversation, and she's talking about the impact that they could have um, and that they're already having just by even, like, hosting the tournament and and performing at the World Cup on this stage um, long-term. And there's, there's really something there. It's really a, a powerful little video, uh, quite moving. They're all... It's weird because you're watching these players that have become superstars in themselves reduce the fans as well. So it's quite nice in that respect. But there's there is this real like like we have a responsibility here that you don't necessarily, you know, get with that home advantage on the men's side, which is very much more like the twelfth man, blah blah blah, you know, cheering you on on the pitch, keeping you going, energizing you. There is this extra that extra added bit of legacy really, really does make a big difference, I feel. In in terms of the the twelfth man and the crowd cheering you on would it be naive of me to suggest that the republic of ireland might as well be playing at home as well because i'm i'm only guessing but i presume they will have a massive yeah, crowds massive at their games uh, of irish people because there's a huge irish population in 
Sydney, Perth and Brisbane where they're playing. It's interesting, actually. Ireland have to zigzag from Sydney to Perth and then back to Brisbane for their three games. How long is that flight to Perth, Matt? About seven oh, hours so or something? Sydney to Perth? Probably four, five. Oh, is that all? Oh, okay, right. Yeah. I thought it was more. But, um, and, and I suppose England as well, loads of English people in, in Oz who will uh, presumably turn out in numbers to support them. I'm really looking forward to the Australia Republic of Ireland game in Sydney tomorrow, just to see how, what the proportion of each country's fans is, because Ireland uh, famously played Italy in New York and, and uh, Italy were expected to have all the tickets and, and Ireland outnumbered them massively. Yes, that's the famous Jack Charlton going out to look at the fans, coming back in, pointing at Tony Cascarino and saying, you're the only Italian here, Cass. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, they, ha- they did have to move the stadium. Um, it was at a much smaller stadium and they moved it to the bigger stadium, to the 80,000-seater, because it sold out so quickly. And I think that's in no small part because of the Irish contingent that is going to show up to that game. So I agree, it's going to be really interesting to see what it actually looks like. All right, that'll do for part one. Uh, we'll talk uh, the favourites US at the start of part two. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, the Guardian Football Weekly book is out for pre-order. It is just as good as it was when we spoke about it the last time we spoke about it, Barry. Um, um, it features contributions from all your favourite Football Weekly regulars, uh, including Mark Langdon's World of Meat. Uh, if that doesn't make you buy it, then what? Look, it's a toilet book, all right? Put it by the toilet and you'll get through it pretty quickly. Uh, if you pre-order it from the Guardian Bookshop, 20% off. Uh, it's out on the 28th of September. Um, and also uh, Robin Cowan is hosting uh, an online forum, should we call it, with me, Barry and Wilson about the book. So hopefully we get it and read it uh, before then. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, the, the US, Like They're the favourites ahead of England, Spain, Germany, Australia and France. That's sort of where the bookies have got it. Um, they would become the first country to win a third consecutive World Cup across the men's and women's game. What is so good about the US? You can say everything. Yeah, yeah, everything pretty much. Um, that they're they're on a bit of an an evolution at the moment, and uh, and a bit of a change, and they just don't lose pace because, you know, we, we know the reason because they invest. Um, there's uh, kids play um, soccer from a young age in in, in the USA, and and it, you know you, you you can tell that. I think it's going to be harder for them this year than it has been previously because everybody else's standards have raised up, which is brilliant for uh, for the tournament. But I still think, you know, they are the standout uh, in terms of mindset, play, technique, everything. They're absolutely incredible. They've also got Sophia Smith, who is amazing. They've got some of their players who are kind of coming to the end of, you know, the, the big names, if you like. Megan Rapinoe has already announced that she's going to be retiring um, at the end of the tournament. You've got Alex Morgan, uh, of course, who came over um, to to the UK and played for Tottenham. We didn't see that much of her, really, but obviously she's a huge presence in that, in that squad. And, you know, I, I really do think, although I, I love the fact that they're in a group with the Netherlands, that's really exciting, the two 2019 finalists in the same group. I mean, I feel sorry for, for Vietnam and, and Portugal, especially what happened to Vietnam last time they, they, they played the US with that 13-0 defeat, I, I kind of think. And Portugal were their first time in, um, in, in the tournament. The USA are just going to app 
absolutely steamroller those two teams I, I would expect but yeah they're definitely going to have more competition than they have done in, in previous incarnations of of the World Cup but you know Vlatko Andonovsky since taking over from um, from Jill Ellis has done a really good job and kept the consistent levels that this US team have quite high. Uh, who are you most looking forward to watching that US side Susie? Oh definitely the young forwards um, they mentioned Sophia Smith but also Trinity Rodman like they're just they play with such a, a like a fearlessness and a freedom that is really exciting. It reminds me a little bit of the, what we saw from Alessia Russo and Ella Toon at the Euros last summer. Um, a real sort of just joy to watch because there's just, you know, no pressure on them. Um, and I think there is a bit of pressure on the England show now, whereas these two coming into their, their first major tournament um, and we, like the US just have this like swagger about them. They, they. I remember Megan Rapinoe said we we just never ever believe that we're going to not win. Um, like no matter what, you know, one nil down, two nil down, three nil down. The mentality is that they will win regardless. And they may they may lose. They may lose a game here or there. But the point is is that they throughout the entirety or every single second of a match, they believe that they are winning that match. And there's just this um, this this mentality, uh, like an an, almost, an expectation um, that runs through women's football in the US because there's an expectation that they deserve to be invested in, to be supported, uh, and thus to be the best as well. Um, that is just ingrained throughout their entire playing careers that just comes to fruition. They're also really lucky in that their season is mid-season so they are really fresh um whereas obviously you know the tournament being pushed back a little bit it's there's been a quite a big gap between the end of most european seasons and the start of the world cup so players sort of had to rest recover get fit again and get back ready whereas they're like playing week in week out before this kicked off and are ready to go sort of straight off the bat face spain have some talented players and they pateas is Fitness is a concern, isn't it? She missed the Euros, which was a great shame. I think Bon Mati is just one of my favourite players, just the way she moves the ball. You know, just such a clever, sensible footballer. How good are they? What chance do they have? Well, again, every time we speak about Spain, you know, we can talk about their attacking prowess. We can talk about the beautiful football that they play. But every single time we talk about Spain, it goes back to what's been going on behind the scenes and the fact that there were 15 players you know who wrote an open letter to the Spanish FA complaining about conditions and then haven't been selected although three of those are are back in now including Bon Mati Onabacho who, who plays for Manchester United of course um, as well and Mariona Caldente and actually the hardest thing I think for Spain has been that despite everything going on off the pitch I think everybody expected them under Jorge Vilda to then struggle and they haven't because they've got some really exciting youngsters in their team as well. And actually, you know, they, uh, they, they've they been in scintillating form. You know, they were unbeaten in qualifying. They won every single game. And, you know, they're a real prospect. But, you know, as as we've seen previously, if, if things implode behind the scenes in the dressing room, then it doesn't matter how good you are on the pitch. It... it, it it portrays out there and I, th- I think that's what the big question mark is um, for, for Spain and they've got Japan in their group as well and and Japan are pretty 
pretty impressive although I do think that it's going to be an easy route to the last 16 for 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 Spain so, in group C. So so how come those three are back in did they sort of fall on their sword as it were or or how did that happen what happened So the impression I get and it's not been said publicly is that I I think there's been some sort of internal apology or something or an acceptance that you know maybe they shouldn't have taken that route or something because the federation was so so rigid and like frosty in their response and basically said that the only way players are getting back in the team is if they apologize and sorry and the problem was with the was accusations against the manager wasn't it? yeah the manager and just the culture and environment around the team right. so um and him being the you know the symbol of of that environment as well um so yeah real frustrations around him you know he's been there a long time um his dad works for the federation you know he's been involved in uh in the women's side for a very long time and there's been frustrations over the setup for a very long time um and so the players wrote this letter basically saying you know we uh you know want to step back from being able to be called up until we feel like where you know our mental health health and physical health is going to be looked after and we don't feel quite um so awful when we're in camp essentially and then the federation has come down like a ton of bricks and gone no um no one's coming back into the team unless they apologize um and you know very different scenario to france where they had an internal investigation they kicked out corinne diac and hired her renard uh on the eve of the tournament although that had been a long long process to getting to that point there'd been lots of um lots of uh, resistance to removing her for a very, very long time before that. Um, and so, yeah, now you've got the situation where Freya back in, plus um, Puteas, who wasn't a part of the 15 because she was injured, but had, by all intents and purposes, backed the 15. She just hadn't, like, physically put her name to it. Um, so, yeah, it's all... I just find the whole thing a little bit unsavoury because you've got a bunch of players, some of the best players in the world, some of Barcelona's, three of Barcelona's Champions League winners, uh, not at the tournament on principle. And yeah. that's being forgotten a, a lot. And they're like superb players. Um, and yeah, you know, it's not the best look uh, for Spain or for the tournament to not have them there. And also, I just don't like the idea that there's clearly some kind of divide now amongst what was a very unified group of players. Um, you know, clearly the Federation's been successful in sort of like a bit of a divide and conquer strategy, getting Alexia there, getting, you know, Onya Batje and Bon Matty back and, you know, things like that. Like that's been sort of, yeah, that speaks to a, a not very pleasant um, split amongst the team that like, I don't know, how severe it is. I don't know how sympathetic the likes of Patry and stuff who aren't there are to the players that have gone back. But it, it like, yeah, I just don't like seeing that unity broken. Barry, anything else you're looking forward to? I noticed that Marta is still, I mean, she must be about 110 now, mustn't she? So anything else you're uh, looking forward to? I'm, I'm, I'm just looking forward to the tournament. Like, I'm not going to claim to be, I'm, I'm hopelessly out of my depth here uh, with Susie and Faye who, who clearly, follow the game much more closely than I I do. I'm look, just looking forward to how it pans out. I hope Ireland get out of their group um, and, and get to play England, which I think will be a terrific occasion. Um, and, yeah, just dip in and out as I can and, and have, a, have a nice time. See how it goes. I, I expect it to be a fun tournament. I, interestingly, actually, Susie will laugh at this. I was chatting to a pal of mine in the pub on Sunday and he was getting the hump 
because this Women's World Cup is being rammed down his throat. Oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was actually, Ellis James was there as well uh, with us. And Ellis, of course, found this hilarious because he's he's a great ally of, of the Wales women's football team. So I've now taken sending my mate all the Guardian stuff, every article <laughs> that is published, I WhatsApp him links to it. And I am going to ram this tournament down his throat and have him I, as a, co- a convert by August 20th. I, 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 I think you should post him individual <laughs> lozenges one by one daily. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say, post him, you know, the, the most comprehensive player um, profiles ever that The Guardian have done. Post him oh, no, I've, three I've, a day. I have, I've sent him... I've sent him Marcus's interactive with every single player on it, so he has he has no excuses. But um, I found that amusing because he literally used the words "ram down my throat," which is the classic <laughs> blokey, um, you know, attitude from men who aren't interested in the women's game. And I'm pointing out to him, look. You don't have to watch it. It's okay. It's very easily avoidable. No, it isn't because it's top of all the websites oh. I look at and top of the homepage. Oh, oh it's it was, so difficult. It so difficult to move your mouse and and click onto something else. Oh my goodness, <laughs> how terrible for you! Uh, do you know what I find quite funny about that? Actually, because you, you know what it's like is on the eve of any tournament, it's rammed down your throat because it's a huge tournament, and then everybody just gets is, yeah. super excited because you watch the opening couple of games the opening ceremony is always a bit bonkers and weird and then you kind of get to get into it and then you find a couple of teams that you were like i never knew anything about these teams and and start following them on their journey it's just like any other sporting (laughs) tournament just happens to be that there are women running around the pitch don't get how does he cope with wimbledon (laughs) my god it's been rads everywhere i can't ram two weeks anyway (laughs) uh, that'll do for part two um of course download the guardian women's football weekly wherever you get your podcast it's going out three times a week throughout the tournament a few of them will go into our feed uh, but if you just have their feed then you can listen to all of it and it's really good and uh if you want to listen to today in focus today has karen carney uh talking about uh that recent uh, review into the state of women's football in the uk so you can listen to that too and we'll be back in a second Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Chris wrote in to say, what does the reaction of huge amounts of players to Benjamin Mendy's verdict tell us about football's attitudes to women? So on Friday, Mendy was cleared of raping a woman and attempting to rape another, the end of a nearly three-year-long process. Earlier this year, he was cleared of six counts of rape and one of sexual assault in his original trial. After his acquittal, um, his lawyer, Jenny Wiltshire, says Benjamin Mendy would like to thank the members of the jury for focusing on the evidence in this trial rather than on the rumour and innuendo that have followed the case from the outset. This is the second time that Mr. Mendy has been tried and found not guilty by a jury. He is delighted that both juries reached the correct verdict. It's been almost three years since the police started investigating this matter. Mr. Mendy has tried to remain strong, but the process has inevitably had a serious impact on him. He thanks everyone who supported him throughout his ordeal, now asks for privacy so he can begin rebuilding his life. Um, There were quite a few footballers who posted supportive messages in response, and a lot of footballers who liked those posts. Um, Memphis Depay wrote let's talk about it all cases dismissed what are we going to do now who is going to help this brother heal 
Who's going to be responsible for the damage on his name? How's he going to have his career back? Many years of investment to become a professional football player. Now what? I've never touched on this subject because I didn't know all the details. I've spoken to him once through FaceTime while behind bars and faced him on the pitch a couple of times. I didn't see any evil in the man. We can't accept this to happen to us as athletes. Who's going to stand up for us in the time of need, not when the damage is already done? Don't turn your head away, people. And then he copied in FIFA, the Premier League, Man City and the French national team. Who's fucking defending us athletes? Where are the big corporations when we need them? Let's all pray for Benjamin to get his mental health, physical and spiritual strength back. That post has been liked by a lot of players. Jack Grealish, Antonio Rudiger, Phil Foden, Rio Ferdinand. Um, Vinicius Jr. wrote, I'm sorry for everything you've been through, Benjamin Mendy. You lost two years of your career, but that's the least of this whole situation. What about psychological damage? Surely your life will never be the same. The culture of destroying reputations has made yet another victim. Until when will we be accused and condemned without having the right to basic defence? Fake news has created and spread without checking any facts, which is something I personally felt a lot on this holiday. And then the situation only gets worse. Being responsible would be the minimum for any professional, but nowadays serious work has become an exception. There's no limits to get more clicks and engagement. My question is, what will be done to repair the damage? Susie, are you surprised to see this level of public support for Mendy? Yes and no, in that, yes, uh, like, I'm disappointed that it fails to give any kind of acknowledgement that there are potentially a lot of women, well, definitely a lot of women out there who are affected by serious sexual abuse and have cases go through the courts and struggle to get a conviction regardless of whether the individual is guilty or not. That's a big problem. Like no acknowledgement of that, no um, sort of respect for the feelings and um and 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 trauma of what a number of women have gone through i think is a big problem um when it's so widely uh, disregarded in society generally am i over am i am i really surprised that players who are quite insulated from um ordinary society um sort of felt the need to speak out on something like this not entirely either because they are so utterly removed from sort of the normal reality facing people, particularly uh, women and these kind of cases. So it's, you know, regardless of, you know, what you make of the verdict, there's a a real decision that they've made to speak out without paying any lip service to the fact that only um, like one in a hundred rapes recorded by police in 2021 resulted in a charge that same year, let alone a conviction. And regardless of what you think about Mendy, regardless if you think he was a victim or a perpetrator, there's a big problem if you're not being slightly sympathetic towards women that may have been incredibly triggered by uh, his lack of conviction uh, regardless of whether it was a legitimate one or not. That's the, the thing I have the biggest issue with. There's also a real almost irresponsibility, I would say, in the messaging that's going out with this because the message is very much be afraid of women. Women are accusers and um, false accusers. And that immediately puts a question mark over anybody who puts an allegation forward to an incident that they've been involved in. It puts huge question marks over young men, you know, straight away. Just just this automatic assumption 
that this would be the case in every single situation and that there are women trying to, you know, almost trap these poor defenceless athletes, if if you like. That's that's how I feel it's being, you know, defended. And again, I think it's fair that everybody uses the platform that they have to to push against whatever issues within society that, that, that they feel need to be highlighted. But I think with this, exactly as Susie says, there is a culture um, that exists whereby a group of people are all lumped into one, you know, like all professional athletes. Um, they're professional athletes, therefore innocent. Anybody accusing them of wrongdoing, guilty, as opposed to the other way. And I can understand why some of them might feel like that is a mirror and flipped over the other way. And we live in a wild west of social media, which is you know, frightening, if I'm honest, at the moment. And I don't think this helps. And I think that if you have a platform like many of these players do, there is a responsibility within it. And I don't feel necessarily that they have thought about that responsibility. Mm. I, I, I mean, I've written about football's relationship, men's football's relationship with domestic and sexual violence. And you have to be very careful about what you write. I remember writing a column with no specifics about anything because if you mention any particular case, then it's very difficult legally. And it's important to make that demarcation between talking about that relationship and talking about this verdict. Mendy was found not guilty of eight counts of rape, one of attempted rape, sexual assault, relating to seven women. But, but his own evidence provided in court, you know, suggests an attitude to women, doesn't it? During his cross-examination in the second trial, he admitted to often having unprotected sex, said he enjoyed having sexual intercourse with lots of different women. He revealed it wasn't difficult to meet women due to his status as a Premier League footballer. At one point, um, one of the prosecutors acting for the CPS asked Mendy whether he just wanted women who were interested in sex, to which he said, yeah. And, you know, and there were stories of, you know, more than one man having sex with the same woman on the same night. And I mean, it doesn't surprise me, Barry, that there is a, a sort of a culture of misogyny within male football dressing rooms, right? It's such a male environment. It's just, it's, you know, just testosterone everywhere. And I, I just don't know how to, I don't know how you, that culture, how to change that culture seems very, very difficult. I wonder how many of the players who expressed support or liked uh, Memphis Depay's tweet were familiar with the, the nitty-gritty of the case because some of the details were quite squalid. You know, I'm an old man now. I don't know if, if that's what youngsters are up to these days. But if if that was a son of mine behaving like that, I would be very disappointed. And I would let him know in no uncertain terms that I was very disappointed whether he'd care or not is another thing. But that's all hypothetical. I, I think it's unfair to... I haven't spent time in football dressing rooms, obviously, but I would suspect it's unfair to say they're dens of misogyny because most footballers I've met seem to be really nice, well-adjusted, well-rounded guys. But certainly the attitude, a, a prevailing air of misogyny seemed to cloud these proceedings. I suppose the the way to go about changing any kind of misogynistic culture is is to have people like our friend Lucy Ward providing education to to youngsters as she used to do at Leeds she's very 
proud and protective of all her boys and you know like Calvin Phillips she often cites as an example of very nice well-adjusted young man and I'm sure a lot of the reason for that is is down to Calvin's mom and his his late grandmother who he'd often speaks of and Lucy because Lucy had that job at Leeds where she she taught the guys you know how to live life outside football how to respect women how to you know educate themselves and all that and I I, I don't know if all clubs have have a she might not appreciate the term but a mother figure like that or a mother hen figure like that but uh, they certainly should yeah I was just thinking again about the the thing that properly shocked me is perhaps that of all of the things that players choose and could choose to speak out on that they all felt that this was the thing that they needed to show support for, I think is what is quite worrying. Um, that this was the the, t- the tweet they needed to like, that this was the, the collective stand they needed to take. But there's also the, the good, right? Like there was a great um, post from Versus um, connecting uh, all of these issues to the Women's World Cup being about to kick off and building an environment that I think it said to... Uh, empathise with and and that respects women Um, and one of the people to comment on that was on Instagram was Hector Bellerin who just said word and that is like a refreshing his his solo solo intervention was a bit of a refreshing antidote to uh, to that I thought Um, you know there are players out there that understand the issues in a in a much more uh, socially conscious way than maybe maybe some of the other players do um, at stake here. Let's talk about Deli Ali. He gave a pretty harrowing interview with Gary Neville uh, a few weeks ago now, uh, where he said he was molested at the age of six, started smoking at the age of seven, was dealing drugs at eight. He was sent um, uh, to Africa for a year to learn discipline with his dad. Um, and he talked about being in rehab for six weeks due to, due to a sleeping pill addiction. On the addiction, says he said, it's probably a problem that not only I have, but it's something going around more than people realise in football. Maybe me coming out and speaking about it can help. I mean, it's it's firstly so desperately sad, Barry, like the accident of birth, and actually pretty astonishing what he's achieved already as a footballer, given that backstory. It's outrageous that he had to speak before he wanted to, because one of the tabloids had the story about his his rehab and were threatening to run it. But it's interesting about how, and you actually say a lot, we don't know what's happening in someone's private life. And actually sometimes when you say that, I think, well, we can't say this all the time about every possible footballer, but it is definitely worth having at the top or at least the back of your mind when you are analysing and talking about people on the pitch. Well, I, I don't want to toot our own horn here, but I I do think on this podcast we were quite kind with regard to Deli Ali's quite astonishing, you know, the way his form went off a cliff. And I think quite a few people probably owe him an apology because they they just put it down to him being a waster or a playboy or just being lazy. I don't think that Amazon uh, documentary on Spurs did him any favours. And... Uh, it was desperately sad to hear his interview and hopefully he can can relight the fire and i mean it's not hugely important in the cosmic scheme of things but he has cited his own personal ambition to get back to where he was and become a better player and if he can do that 
some club's going to have a hell of a player on their hands, whether it's Everton or, or somebody else. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a year or so ago, I watched that 2019 semi-final, the Ajax Spurs one. And God, at his peak, he's such a graceful athlete. He's such a brilliant footballer. His touch is so beautiful. I think what, something I found interesting, Fair, and I sort of think about our responsibility when we're you know, talking about other humans and, and, uh, and what they do and sort of laughing at their mistakes and praising them when they're good and reflecting on how we do it. And I, and I think Barry's right. I think here we do it pretty well. Happy to be, you know, told otherwise is that a lot of people came out in the last few weeks going, look, this shows that footballers are humans too, are exactly the same people who will be writing or yelling in three weeks' time when the Premier League starts, he's an embarrassment, he's not fit to wear the shirt, he's a disgrace. And that is that sort of hypocrisy made me sort of furious inside. That's, that's football, isn't it? You know, fickle, fickle football fans. And, you know, I, I do think this pod does that really well, actually. And I'm always really conscious I'm in a very privileged position where I get to sit down with a lot of these players and talk to them about themselves their careers um, you know the help that they've had from their families going forward and I, and I do feel as if a lot of people forget that, and this is where the money always comes into it which seems ridiculous because they get paid an obscene amount of money it's therefore they are up for you know, whatever abuse people want to throw at them, that that, that that is therefore okay. But if you're an empathetic human being on any level whatsoever, you can't help but wonder when you see a player's form dip, why a player's form is dipping. Now, whether or not that player then wants to discuss that with you or not is is another matter. Whenever I sat down and spoke to, to Deli Ali, he... Every single interview was always prefaced with Delhi wasn't doesn't want to talk about his family. Every single one. The fact that he always had to reiterate that, you know, to 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 the media team at Tottenham so that people didn't ask, it, I, I found really sad because he clearly felt as if you know people were being intrusive and the spotlight was on him. And there's nothing scarier than feeling like you're in the eye of the storm and that everybody's talking about you and everybody's focusing on what's going wrong in your life and piling on because that's what happens. People pile on. And these are human beings. They're doing a job and we're paying lots of money to watch them do a job. Yes, but you know, a lot of their wages are coming from commercial things it's it's irrelevant what they're being paid you have to go down to the base level of who they are as a as as a person and what's going on for them behind the scenes and use a bit of empathy in life please yeah I mean I've covered a lot of sexual abuse cases in sport and uh, in football in gymnastics you name it and like I was I was really like viciously angry by the idea that he was like forced essentially to speak out much much sooner than he perhaps was ready to or should have um given he's like quite early into the processing of all his various traumas um like i really found that very difficult because one of the first things one of the very first conversations i have with anyone who has come forward to me wanting to speak about their abuse is to have a conversation completely off the record completely unwritten no notes that just says you know, like, are you sure you want to do this? These are the consequences of it being published. Is this definitely the conversation you want to have? So to then see someone forced into it is really, like, horrific. Um, but one of the things that interested me about this was the the response from players contrasted so, so, so starkly with the response to the Mendy case, obviously, two completely different issues. But on the one hand, you've got a real 
dismissal of an issue that could be extremely triggering to men or women that have suffered sexual abuse and never reported it. You know, five in six victims don't report their abuse. One percent of those don't get uh, only about one percent of those get a conviction that do report it. And then you've almost got a whole number of players, some of whom are the same players, praising um, Delhi for sharing his trauma and being brave and talking about his experience. And that for me, like that, that contradiction was, was so, so sharp because there was a real lack of understanding in the response to Mendy of the, uh, the impact of that on someone like Delhi who has suffered severe trauma. And that really, that really sort of, you know, I found that really difficult to process in the space of a few days, just how contrasting that was. And that spoke to a real like education piece that Barry already mentioned that needs to be done with players on, um, on trauma and, and, and on a lot of these issues around how you deal with trauma and people who have suffered trauma. Um, all kinds of different traumas, not just sexual abuse traumas, um, because there's there's a real missing part there, a real lack of understanding and empathy for for people who have suffered it, and yet then a display of it for one of their own, um, and that that really really I think was 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 very very stark. I think the issue with that, Susie, is that there's there's also going to be people who tweeted and uh, you know these these two stories are completely unrelated right but the but the overarching you know theme is empathy right when you think about it and actually you could argue that the players coming out in support of Benjamin Mendy are coming out with empathy for you know he's been you know cleared of all charges and he's been dragged through the courts for 3 years and there is an empathy for what he's had to go through in the trauma that, that he has suffered and what has gone on so if you you kind of have to apply it to both and 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 that sounds uncomfortable really uncomfortable but I feel I feel as if you 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 do it's a balance though right isn't it you you can you can um you know kind of show empathy for Mendy if if that is what you feel you want to um put your hand up about and say something about but then you balance that with an understanding of the impact of it as well and an acknowledgement of the broader impact um on people that have you know not had their cases go through the courts you know there's there was a real vibe that this was you know an endemic of of false accusations and things like that uh within football and that you know this was something that they felt really strongly about there's got to be a bit of a wider acknowledgement it's all about the balance of it for me like it's all you, Show support for Mendy if you believe it, but balance that with an empathy for people who will be really suffering as a result of this case going public in the way that it has and the way it's the, the sort of level of support that uh, you know, that you're showing um, in 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 the way that you're showing it. Thanks for those talking about those two stories. I think they're really interesting. I think we could have given them a lot more time, conscious that we probably need to at some point in the future, and, and we will. Um, for an enormous gear change to finish, Kevin says, just do some Luton stuff, really. I'm, I'm conscious, Faye, that you'll be on Women's World Cup duty quite a lot, so <laughs> there may not be time for a Luton corner before the Premier League season starts. How are you feeling? There's always time for Luton corner, Max. Of course there is. <laughs> I mean, let's, come on, let's, be, let's be real now. I mean, there will. I mean, there's going to be much more Luton corner. It still doesn't feel real. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I spoke to Natalie Sawyer, um, a colleague at TalkSport, and when Brentford were promoted up to the Premier League, she said it felt real when the fixture list came out. 
And so I waited for the fixture list to come out and it still didn't feel real. And I don't think it's going to feel real until I see us playing Brighton um, in that opening game at the Amex. A real clash of styles, beautiful Brighton against dirty hoofball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, listen, I, I am, I am, I'm protecting myself with everything I'm just going to have to defend my team constantly this season I feel from really lazy mistropes about uh, <laughs> the way we play football and you know our away end and all of that kind of stuff um, but listen I, I feel like uh, it was quite funny my cousin listens to this pod uh, shout out to Graham and he sent a message he said I don't think we're going to be doing a Peter Ridsdale's leads are we and I replied to him saying we've just signed a wing of from Rotherham most definitely not <laughs> so we'll see how we get on this season but I'm excited apologies in advance to Graham for the number of times I say dirty long ball in association <laughs> with Newton Town um, uh, right that'll do for today um, uh, uh, we will obviously uh, catch up with both of you over the course of the World Cup again listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly it's really good they're doing three a week uh, but for the time being cheers Baz thank you thank you Faye bye Max cheers Susie G'day. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanderson. This is The Guardian.